Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Another World Audiobooks, carrying on with A Princess of Mars, story of John Carter on the Red Planet. Hope you guys are enjoying it so far. I do want to do a quick shout out to some uh, listeners, like I mentioned last time. It was super awesome how I figured out how to uh, view where some of the listeners are at, country-wise and stuff, and looks like we've got uh, quite a few listeners out in Australia, so down under on the other side of the world, basically. Awesome, so happy to have you guys listening. Uh, looks like Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales, Western Australia, South Australia, Australian Capital Territory, and Tasmania, which... Yeah, that is just absolutely awesome. So happy to have you guys listening. If you want to, um, I'd, I'd love to connect with you. If you want to hit me up on social media, all the links are down below in the episode description, which I discovered the other day. I don't know if a lot of people know how to <laughs> access the uh, the episode's uh, show notes. So you can just usually, on most podcast players, just tap the, the actual like image. So uh, you can see the Another World audiobooks image there. Um, as the episode is playing, if you just tap that, that'll show the show notes, which have the links to social media, as well as where you can buy the books uh, from Another World Line Books. So, thanks guys for listening, and now without further ado, I give you the next two chapters of A Princess of Mars. Chapter 14, A Duel to the Death My first impulse was to tell her of my love, and then I thought of the helplessness of her position, wherein I alone could lighten the burdens of her captivity, and protect her in my poor way against the thousands of hereditary enemies she must face upon our arrival at Thark. I could not chance causing her additional pain or sorrow by declaring a love which, in all probability, she did not return. Should I be so indiscreet, her position would be even more unbearable than now, and the thought that she might feel that I was taking advantage of her helplessness to influence her decision was the final argument which sealed my lips. Why are you so quiet, Dejah Thoris? I asked. Possibly you would rather return to Sola in your quarters. No, she murmured. I am happy here. I do not know why it is that I should always be happy and contented when you, John Carter, a stranger, are with me. Yet at such times it seems that I am safe, and that, with you, I shall soon return to my father's court and feel his strong arms about me and my mother's tears and kisses on my cheek. Do people kiss then upon Barsoom? I asked, when she had explained the word she used in answer to my inquiry as to its meaning. Parents, brothers, and sisters, yes, and... She added in a low, thoughtful tone. Lovers. And you, Dejah Thoris, have parents and brothers and sisters? Yes. And a lover? She was silent, nor could I venture to repeat the question. The man of Barsoom, she finally ventured, does not ask personal questions of women except his mother and the woman he has fought for and won. But I have fought. I started, and then I wished my tongue had been cut from my mouth, for she turned, even as I caught myself and ceased, and drawing my silks from her shoulders, she held them out to me, and, without a word, and with head held high, she moved with the carriage of the queen she was toward the plaza and the doorway of her quarters. I did not attempt to follow her, other than to see that she reached the building in safety, but, directing Wula to accompany her, I turned disconsolately and entered my own house. I sat for hours cross-legged and cross-tempered 
upon my silks, meditating upon the queer freaks chance plays upon us poor devils of mortals. So this was love. I'd escaped it for all the years I had roamed the five continents and their encircling seas. In spite of beautiful women and urging opportunity, in spite of a half-desire for love and a constant search for my ideal, it had remained for me to fall furiously and hopelessly in love with a creature from another world, of a species similar, possibly, yet not identical with mine. A woman who was hatched from an egg, and whose span of life might cover a thousand years, whose people had strange customs and ideas, a woman whose hopes, whose pleasures, whose standards of virtue and of right and wrong might vary as greatly from mine as did those of the green Martians. Yes, I was a fool, but I was in love, and though I was suffering the greatest misery I had ever known, I would not have had it otherwise for all the riches of Basum. Such is love, and such are lovers wherever love is known. To me, Deja Thoris was all that was perfect, all that was virtuous and beautiful and noble and good. I believe that from the bottom of my heart, from the depth of my soul on that night in Korad, as I sat cross-legged upon my silks while the nearer moon of Basum raced through the western sky toward the horizon and lighted up the gold and marble and jeweled mosaics in my world-old chamber, and I believed it today as I sit at my desk in the little study overlooking the Hudson. Twenty years have intervened. For ten of them I lived and fought for Dejar Thoris and her people, and for ten I have lived upon her memory. The morning of our departure for Thark dawned clear and hot, as do all Martian mornings, except for the six weeks when the snow melts at the pools. I sought out Dejar Thoris in the throng of departing chariots, but she turned her shoulder to me, and I could see the red blood mount to her cheeks. With the foolish inconsistency of love, I held my peace when I might have pled ignorance of the nature of my offense, or at least the gravity of it, and so have effected, at worst, a half-conciliation. My duty dictated that I must see that she was comfortable, and so I glanced into her chariot and rearranged her silks and furs. In doing so, I noted with horror that she was heavily chained by one ankle to the side of the vehicle. "'What does this mean?' I cried, turning to Sola. "'Sarkoja thought it best,' she answered, her face betokening her disapproval of the procedure. Examining the manacles, I saw that they fastened with a massive spring lock. Where is the key, Sola? Let me have it. Sarkoja wears it, John Carter, she answered. I turned without further word and sought out Tars Tarkas, to whom I vehemently objected to the unnecessary humiliations and cruelties, as they seemed to my lover's eyes, that were being heaped upon Dejar Thoris. John Carter, he answered. If ever you and Dejar Thoris escape the Tharks, it will be upon this journey. We know that you will not go without her. You have shown yourself a mighty fighter, and we do not wish to manacle you, so we hold you both in the easiest way that will yet ensure security. I have spoken. I saw the strength of his reasoning at a flash, and knew that it was futile to appeal from his decision, but I asked that the key be taken from Sarkoja, and that she be directed to leave the prisoner alone in the future. This much, Tars Tarkas, you may do for me in return for the friendship that, I must confess, I feel for you. Friendship? He replied. There is no such thing, John Carter. But have your will. I shall direct that Sarkoja cease to annoy the girl, and I myself will take the custody of the key. Unless you wish me to assume the responsibility, I said, smiling. He looked at me long and earnestly before he spoke. 
were you to give me your word that neither you nor Deja Thoris would attempt to escape until we have safely reached the court of Talhajus, you might have the key and throw the chain into the river Is. It were better that you held the keys, Tars Tarkas, I replied. He smiled and said no more, but that night, as we were making camp, I saw him unfasten Deja Thoris's fetters himself. With all his cruel ferocity and coldness, there was an undercurrent of something in Tars Tarkas which he seemed ever battling to subdue. Could it be a vestige of some human instinct, come back from an ancestor forebear to haunt him with the horror of his people's ways? As I was approaching Dejar Thoris's chariot, I passed Sarkoja, and the black venomous look she accorded me was the sweetest balm I had felt for many hours. Lord, how she hated me! It bristled from her so palpably that one might almost have cut it with a sword. A few minutes later, I saw her in deep conversation with a warrior named Zad, a big, hulking, powerful brute, but one who had never made a kill among his own chieftains, and so was still an Omad, or man with one name. He could win a second name only with a medal of some chieftain. It was this custom which entitled me to the names of either of the chieftains I had killed. In fact, some of the warriors addressed me as Dotar Sojad, a combination of the surnames of the two war chieftains whose medal I had taken, or, in other words, whom I had slain in fair fight. As Sarkoja talked with Zad, he cast occasional glances in my direction, while she seemed to be urging him very strongly to some action. I paid little attention to it at the time, but the next day I had good reason to recall the circumstances, and at the same time gain a slight insight into the depths of Sarkoja's hatred and the lengths to which she was capable of going to wreak her horrid vengeance on me. Deja Thoris would have none of me again on this evening, and though I spoke her name she neither replied nor conceded by so much as the flutter of an eyelid that she realized my existence. In my extremity I did what most other lovers would have done. I sought word from her through an intimate. In this instance it was Sola whom I intercepted in another part of the camp. What is the matter with Deja Thoris? I blurted out at her. Why would she not speak to me? Sola seemed puzzled herself, as though some strange actions on the part of two humans were quite beyond her, as indeed they were, poor child. She says you have angered her, and that is all she will say, except that she is the daughter of a Jed and the granddaughter of a Jedak, and she has been humiliated by a creature who could not polish the teeth of her grandmother Sorak. I pondered over this report for some time, finally asking, What might a Sorak be, Sola? A little animal about as big as my hand, which the Red Martian women keep to play with, explained Sola. Not fit to polish the teeth of a grandmother's cat. I must rank pretty low in the consideration of Dejah Thoris, I thought. But I could not help laughing at the strange figure of speech, so homely and in this respect so earthly. It made me homesick for it sounded very much like not fit to polish her shoes. And then commenced a train of thought quite new to me. I began to wonder what my people at home were doing. I had not seen them for years. There was a family of Carters in Virginia who claimed close relationship with me. I was supposed to be a great uncle, or something of the kind equally foolish. I could pass anywhere for twenty-five or thirty years of age, and to be a great uncle always seemed the height of incongruity, for my thoughts and feelings were those of a boy. There were two little kitties in the Carter family whom I had loved and who had thought there was no one on earth like Uncle Jack. I could see them just as plainly as I stood there under the moonlit skies of Barsoom, and I longed for them 
as I had never longed for any mortals before. By nature a wanderer, I had never known the true meaning of the word home, but the great hall of the Carters had always stood for all that that word did mean to me, and now my heart turned towards it from the cold and unfriendly peoples I had been thrown amongst. But did not even Dejah Thoris despise me? I was a low creature, so low in fact that I was not even fit to polish the teeth of a grandmother's cat. And then my saving sense of humor came to my rescue, and laughing I turned into my silks and furs and slept upon the moon-haunted ground the sleep of a tired and healthy fighting man. We broke camp the next day at an early hour and marched with only a single halt until just before dark. Two incidents broke the tediousness of the march. About noon, we espied far to our right what was evidently an incubator, and Lorcas Tormel directed Tars Tarkas to investigate it. The latter took a dozen warriors, including myself, and we raced across the velvety carpeting of moss to the little enclosure. It was indeed an incubator, but the eggs were very small in comparison with those I had seen hatching in ours at the time of my arrival on Mars. Tars Tarkas dismounted and examined the enclosure minutely, finally announcing that it belonged to the green men of Warhoon, and that the cement was scarcely dry where it had been walled up. They cannot be but a day's march ahead of us, he exclaimed, the light of battle leaping to his fierce face. The work of the incubator was short indeed. The warriors tore open the entrance, and a couple of them, crawling in, soon demolished all the eggs with their short swords. Then remounting, we dashed back to join the cavalcade. During the ride, I took occasion to ask Tars Tarkas if these Warhoons whose eggs we had destroyed were a smaller people than his thunks. I noticed that their eggs were so much smaller than those I saw hatching in your incubator, I added. He explained that the eggs had just been placed there, but like all green Martian eggs, they would grow during the five-year period of incubation until they obtained the size of those I had seen hatching on the day of my arrival on Varsoom. This was indeed an interesting piece of information, for it had always seemed remarkable to me that the green Martian women, large as they were, could bring forth such enormous eggs as I had seen the four-foot infants emerging from. As a matter of fact, the new-laid egg is but little larger than an ordinary goose egg, and as it does not commence to grow until subjected to the light of the sun, the chieftains have little difficulty in transporting several hundreds of them at one time from the storage vaults to the incubators. Shortly after the incident of the Wahoon eggs, we halted to rest the animals, and it was during this halt that the second of the day's interesting episodes occurred. I was engaged in changing my riding cloths from one of my thoughts to the other, for I divided the day's work between them, when Zad approached me, and without a word struck my animal a terrific blow with his longsword. I did not need a manual of green Martian etiquette to know what reply to make, for in fact I was so wild with anger that I could scarcely refrain from drawing my pistol and shooting him down for the brute he was. But he stood waiting with drawn longsword, and my only choice was to draw my own and meet him in fair fight with his choice of weapon or a lesser one. This latter alternative is always permissible, therefore I could have used my short sword, my dagger, my hatchet, or my fists had I wished, and been entirely within my rights but I could not use firearm or a spear while he held only his longsword. I chose the same weapon he had drawn, because I knew he prided himself upon his ability with it, and I wished, if I worsted him at all, to do it with his own weapon. The fight that followed was a long one, and delayed the resumption of the march for an hour. The entire community surrounded us, leaving a clear space about one hundred feet in diameter for our battle. Zad first attempted to rush me down as a bull might a wolf, 
but I was much too quick for him, and each time I sidestepped his rushes, he would go lunging past me, only to receive a nick from my sword upon his arm or back. He was soon streaming blood from a half dozen minor wounds, but I could not obtain an opening to deliver an effective thrust. Then he changed his tactics, and fighting warily and with extreme dexterity, he tried to do by science what he was unable to do by brute strength. I must admit that he was a magnificent swordsman, and had it not been for my greater endurance and the remarkable agility the lesser gravitation of Mars lent me, I might not have been able to put up the credible fight I did against him. We circled for some time without doing much damage on either side, the long straight needle-like swords flashing in the sunlight and ringing out upon the stillness as they crashed together with each effective parry. Finally, Zad, realizing that he was tiring more than I, evidently decided to close in and end the battle in a final blaze of glory for himself. Just as he rushed at me, a blinding flash of light struck full in my eyes, so that I could not see his approach and could only leap blindly to one side in an effort to escape the mighty blade that it seemed I could already feel in my vitals. I was only partially successful as a sharp pain in my left shoulder attested, but in the sweep of my glance as I sought to again locate my adversary, a sight met my astonished gaze, which paid me well for the wound the temporary blindness it caused me. There, upon Dejah Thoris's chariot, stood three figures, for the purpose evidently of witnessing the encounter above the heads of the intervening Tharks. There were Dejah Thoris, Sola, and Sarkoja, and as my fleeting glance swept over them, a little tableau was presented which will stand graven in my memory to the day of my death. As I looked, Dejah Thoris turned upon Sarkoja, with the fury of a young tigress, and struck something from her upraised hand, something which flashed in the sunlight as it spun to the ground. Then I knew what had blinded me at that crucial moment of the fight, and how Sarkoja had found a way to kill me without herself delivering the final thrust. Another thing I saw, too, which almost lost my life for me then and there, for it took my mind for a fraction of an instant entirely from my antagonist. For, as Dejah Thoris struck the tiny mirror from her hand, Sarkoja, her face livid with hatred and baffled rage, whipped out her dagger and aimed a terrific blow at Dejah Thoris, and then Sola, our dear and faithful Sola, sprang between them. The last I saw was the great knife descending upon her shielding breast. My enemy had recovered from his thrust and was making it extremely interesting for me, so I reluctantly gave my attention to the work in hand, but my mind was not upon the battle. We rushed each other furiously time after time, till suddenly, Feeling the sharp point of his sword at my breast in a thrust I could neither parry nor escape, I threw myself upon him with outstretched sword and with all the weight of my body, determined that I would not die alone if I could prevent it. I felt the steel tear into my chest. All went black before me. My head whirled in dizziness, and I felt my knees giving beneath me. Chapter 15 Sola Tells Me Her Story when consciousness returned, and as soon as I learned, I was down but for a moment, I sprang quickly to my feet, searching for my sword, and there I found it, buried to the hilt in the green breast of Zad, who lay stone dead upon the ochre moss of the ancient sea bottom. As I regained my full senses, I found his weapon piercing my left breast, but only through the flesh and muscles which cover my ribs, entering near the center of my chest and coming out below the shoulder. As I had lunged, I had turned, so that his sword merely passed beneath the muscles, inflicting a painful but not dangerous wound. Removing the blade from my body, I also regained my own, and turning my back upon his ugly carcass, I moved, sick, sore, and disgusted, toward the chariots which bore my retinue and my belongings. A murmur of Martian applause greeted me, but I cared not for it. 
Bleeding and weak, I reached my women, who, accustomed to such happenings, dressed my wounds, applying the wonderful and remedial healing agents which make only the most instantaneous of death blows fatal. Give a Martian woman a chance, and death must take a back seat. They soon had me patched up so that, except for weakness from loss of blood and a little soreness around the wound, I suffered no great distress from this thrust which, under earthly treatment, undoubtedly would have put me flat on my back for days. As soon as they were through with me, I hastened to the chariot of Dejar Thoris, where I found my poor Sola with her chest swathed in bandages, but apparently little the worse for her encounter with Sarkoja, whose dagger it seemed had struck the edge of one of Sola's metal breast ornaments, and thus deflected, had inflicted but a slight flesh wound. As I approached, I found Dejar Thoris lying prone upon her silks and furs, her lithe form racked with sobs. She did not notice my presence, nor did she hear me speaking with Sola, who was standing a short distance from the vehicle. Is she injured? I asked of Sola, indicating Dejar Thoris by an inclination of my head. No, she answered. She thinks you are dead. And that a grandmother's cap may now have no one to polish its teeth? I queried, smiling. I think you wrong her, John Carter, said Sola. I do not understand either her ways or yours, but I am sure the granddaughter of ten thousand Jeddaks would never grieve like this over any who held but the highest claim upon her affections. They are a proud race, but they are just, as are all Barsoomians, and you must have hurt or wronged her grievously that she will not admit your existence living, though she mourns you dead. Tears are a strange sight upon Barsoom, she continued, and so it is difficult for me to interpret them. I have seen but two people weep in all my life other than Dejar Thoris. One wept from sorrow, the other from baffled rage. The first was my mother years ago before they killed her. The other was Sarkoja when they dragged her from me today. Your mother? I exclaimed. But Sola, you could not have known your mother, child. But I did, and my father also, she added. If you would like to hear the strange and unbarsoomian story come to the chariot tonight, John Carter, and I will tell you that of which I have never spoken in all my life before. And now the signal has been given to resume the march. You must go. I will come tonight, Sola, I promised. Be sure to tell Dejar Thoris I am alive and well. I shall not force myself upon her and be sure that you do not let her know I saw her tears. If she would speak with me, I but await her command. Sola mounted the chariot, which was swinging into its place in line, and I hastened to my waiting throat and galloped to my station beside Tars Tarkas at the rear of the column. We made a most imposing and awe-inspiring spectacle as we strung out across the yellow landscape. The two hundred and fifty ornate and brightly colored chariots, preceded by an advanced guard of some two hundred mounted warriors and chieftains, riding five abreast and one hundred yards apart, and followed by a lack number in the same formation, with a score or more of flankers on either side, the fifty extra mastodons, or heavy draft animals, known as zitadars, and the five or six hundred extra thoats of the warriors, running loose within the hollow square formed by the surrounding warriors. The gleaming metal and jewels of the gorgeous ornaments of the men and women, duplicated in the trappings of the zitadars and thoats, and interspersed with the flashing colors of magnificent silks and furs and feathers, lent a barbaric splendor to the caravan, which would have turned an East Indian potentate green with envy. The enormous broad tires of the chariots, and the padded feet of the animals, brought forth no sound from the moss-covered sea-bottom, 
and so we moved in utter silence, like some huge phantasmagoria, except when the stillness was broken by the guttural growling of a goaded zitidar or the squealing of fighting thoats. The green Martians conversed with little, and then usually in monosyllables, low and like the faint rumbling of distant thunder. We traversed a trackless waste of moss which, bending to the pressure of broad tire or padded foot, rose up again behind us, leaving no sign that we had passed. We might indeed have been the race of the departed dead upon the dead sea of that dying planet for all the sound of sign we made in passing. It was the first march of a large body of men and animals I had ever witnessed which raised no dust and left no spore. For there is no dust upon Mars except in the cultivated districts during the winter months, and even then the absence of high winds render it almost unnoticeable. We camped that night at the foot of the hills we had been approaching for two days, and which marked the southern boundary of this particular sea. Our animals had been two days without drink, nor had they had water for nearly two months, not since shortly after leaving Thark. But, as Tars Tarkas explained to me, they require but little, and can live almost indefinitely upon the moss which covers Barsoom, and which, he told me, holds in its tiny stems sufficient moisture to meet the limited demands of the animals. After partaking of my evening meal of cheese-like food and vegetable milk, I sought out Sola, whom I found working by the light of a torch upon some of Tars Tarkas's trappings. She looked up at my approach, her face lighting with pleasure and with welcome. I am glad you came, she said. Deja Thoris sleeps, and I am lonely. Mine own people do not care for me, John Carter. I am too unlike them. It is a sad fate, since I must live my life amongst them, and I often wish that I were a true green Martian woman, without love and without hope, but I have known love, and so I am lost. I promise to tell you my story, or rather the story of my parents. From what I have learned of you and the ways of your people, I am sure that the tale will not seem strange to you, but among green Martians it has no parallel within the memory of the oldest living Thark, nor do our legends hold many similar tales. My mother was rather small, in fact, too small to be allowed the responsibilities of maternity, as our chieftains breed principally for size. She was also less cold and cruel than most green Martian women, and caring little for their society, she often roamed the deserted avenues of Thark alone, or went and sat among the wild flowers that decked the nearby hills, thinking thoughts and wishing wishes, which I believe I alone among Tharkian women today may understand, for am I not the child of my mother? And there, among the hills, she met a young warrior, whose duty it was to guard the feeding zitidars and thoats, and see that they roam not beyond the hills. They spoke at first only of such things as interest a community of Tharks, but gradually, as they came to meet more often, and, as was now quite evident to both, no longer by chance, they talked about themselves, their likes, their ambitions, and their hopes. She trusted him, and told him of the awful repugnance she felt for the cruelties of their kind, for the hideous, loveless lives they must ever lead, and then she waited for the storm of denunciation to break from his cold, hard lips, but instead he took her in his arms and kissed her. They kept their love a secret for six long years. She, my mother, was of the retinue of the great tall Hajus, while her lover was a simple warrior, wearing only his own medal. Had their defection from the traditions of the Tharks been discovered, both would have paid the penalty in the great arena before Talhajus and the assembled hordes. The egg from which I came was hidden beneath a great glass vessel, upon the highest and most inaccessible of the partially ruined towers of ancient Thark, 
Once each year, my mother visited it for the five long years it lays there in the process of incubation. She dared not come oftener, for in the mighty guilt of her conscience she feared that her every move was watched. During this period, my father gained great distinction as a warrior and had taken the metal from several chieftains. His love for my mother had never diminished, and his own ambition in life was to reach a point where he might wrest the metal from Tal Hajus himself, and thus, as ruler of the Tharks, be free to claim her as his own, as well as, by the might of his power, protect the child which otherwise would be quickly dispatched should the truth become known. It was a wild dream, that of wrestling the metal from Tal Hajus in five short years, but his advance was rapid, and he soon stood high in the council of Tharks. But one day the chance was lost forever, in so far as it could come in time to save his loved ones. For he was ordered away upon a long expedition to the ice-clad south, to make war upon the natives there and despoil them of their furs, for such is the manner of the green Barsoomian, he does not labor for what he can wrest in battle from others. He was gone for four years, and when he returned all had been over for three. For about a year after his departure, and shortly before the time for the return of an expedition which had gone forth to fetch the fruits of a community incubator, the egg had hatched. Thereafter my mother continued to keep me in the old tower, visiting me nightly, and lavishing upon me the love the community life would have robbed us both of. She hoped, upon the return of the expedition from the incubator, to mix me with the other young assigned to the quarters of Tal Hajus, and thus escape the fate which would surely follow discovery of her sin against the ancient traditions of the green men. She taught me rapidly the language and customs of my kind, and one night she told me the story I have told you up to this point impressing upon me the necessity for absolute secrecy and the great caution I must exercise after she had placed me with the other young Tharks to permit no one to guess that I was further advanced in education than they, nor by any sign to divulge in the presence of others my affection for her or my knowledge of my patronage, and then, drawing me close to her, she whispered in my ear the name of my father. And then a light flashed out upon the darkness of the tower chamber, and there, stood Sarkoja, her gleaming baleful eyes fixed in a frenzy of loathing and contempt upon my mother. The torrent of hatred and abuse she poured out upon her turned my young heart cold in terror. That she had heard the entire story was apparent, and that she had suspected something wrong from my mother's long nightly absences from her quarters accounted for her presence there on that fateful night. One thing she had not heard, nor did she know, the whispered name of my father— that was apparent from her repeated demands upon my mother to disclose the name of her partner in sin, but no amount of abuse or threats could wring this from her, and to save me from needless torture she lied, for she told Sarkoja that she alone knew, nor would she ever tell her child. With final imprecations, Sarkoja hastened away to Talhajus to report her discovery, and while she was gone, my mother, wrapping me in the silks and furs of her night coverings so that I was scarcely noticeable, descended to the streets, and ran wildly away toward the outskirts of the city, in the direction which led to the far south, out toward the man whose protection she might not claim, but on whose face she wished to look once more before she died. As we neared the city's southern extremity, a sound came to us from across the mossy flat, from the direction of the only pass through the hills which led to the gates, the pass by which caravans from either north or south or east or west would enter the city, the sounds we heard were the squealing of thoats and the grumbling of zididars, 
with the occasional clank of armor which pronounced the approach of a body of warriors. The thought uppermost in her mind was that it was my father returned from his expedition, but the cunning of the Thark held her from headlong and precipitate flight to greet him. Retreating into the shadows of a doorway, she awaited the coming of the cavalcade, which surely entered the avenue, breaking its formation and thronging the thoroughfare from wall to wall. As the head of the procession passed us, the lesser moon swung clear of the overhanging roofs and lit up the scene with all the brilliancy of her wondrous light. My mother shrank further back into the friendly shadows, and, from her hiding place, saw that the expedition was not that of my father, but the returning caravan bearing the young thoughts. Instantly her plan was formed, and as a great chariot swung close to our hiding place, she slipped stealthily in upon the trailing tailboard, crouching low in the shadow of the high side, straining me to her bosom in a frenzy of love. She knew what I did not, that never again after that night would she hold me to her breast, nor was it likely we would ever look upon each other's face again. In the confusion of the plaza she mixed me with the other children, whose guardians during the journey were now free to relinquish their responsibility. We were herded together into a great room, fed by women who had not accompanied the expedition, and the next day we were parceled out among the retinues of the chieftains. I never saw my mother after that night. She was imprisoned by Tal Hajus, and every effort, including the most horrible and shameful torture, was brought to bear upon her to wring from her lips the name of my father. But she remained steadfast and loyal, dying at last amidst the laughter of Tal Hajus and his chieftains during some awful torture she was undergoing. I learned afterwards that she told them that she had killed me to save me from a like fate at their hands, and that she had thrown my body to the white apes. Sarkoja alone disbelieved her, and I feel to this day that she suspects my true origin, but does not dare expose me at the present, at all events, because she also guesses, I am sure, the identity of my father. When he returned from his expedition and learned the story of my mother's fate, I was present as Tal Hajus told him, but never, by the quiver of a muscle, did he betray the slightest emotion, only he did not laugh as Tal Hajus gleefully described her death struggles. From that moment on he was the cruelest of the cruel, and I am awaiting the day when he shall win the goal of his ambition and feel the carcass of Tal Hajus beneath his foot, for I am sure that he but waits the opportunity to wreak a terrible vengeance, and that his great love is as strong in his breast as when it first transfigured him nearly forty years ago, as I am that we sit here on the edge of a world-old ocean while sensible people sleep, John Carter. And your father, Sola, is he with us now? I asked. Yes, she replied. But he does not know me for what I am, nor does he know who betrayed my mother to Tal Hajus. I alone know my father's name, and only I and Tal Hajus and Sarkoja know that it was she who carried the tale that brought death and torture upon her he loved. We sat in silence for a few moments. She wrapped in the gloomy thoughts of a terrible past, and I, in pity for the poor creatures whom the heartless, senseless customs of their race had doomed to loveless lives of cruelty and of hate. Presently, she spoke. John Carter, if ever a real man walked the cold, dead bosom of Barsoom, you are one. I know that I can trust you, and because the knowledge may some day help you, or him, or Dejah Thoris, or myself, I am going to tell you the name of my father nor place any restrictions or conditions upon your tongue. When the time comes, speak the truth if it seems best to you. 
I trust you because I know that you are not cursed with the terrible trait of absolute and unswerving truthfulness, that you could lie like one of your own Virginia gentlemen if a lie would save others from sorrow or suffering. My father's name is Tars Tarkas. Whoa, talk about a mic drop moment. Ha, didn't see that one coming, did you? So, uh, yeah, I did want to mention, I'm, I want to apologize for the episodes being so short. I would really, these chapters are pretty, uh, small, so I would like to do more, but, um, there's just only so many hours in the day. So if you guys want to help contribute to the podcast and maybe help keep it going and maybe help me uh, be able to have time to create longer episodes, that would entail me probably hiring an editor or, um, having somebody volunteer to edit, um, so either a financial contribution, which you can do by actually purchasing the audiobooks, so you get not just giving money, it's actually getting an audiobook in exchange for that. So the, again, the links are down in the description below, or you can just donate there on anchor.fm slash another world audiobooks if you prefer that, or you can just spread the word because the more people that listen, the better. So thanks for listening guys. And we'll catch you next week. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.